Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, December 26, 2020. And this is the weekly market update. First of all, I want to wish a Merry Christmas to all the listeners. I uh, hope your holiday was joyous and that you were able to spend it with family. I know in many places, uh, lockdowns are affecting that. But uh, hopefully you were able to use guerrilla tactics and get around that and uh, spend some time with family and enjoy your Christmas. This week in the reality check, I'm not going to do a old man get off the lawn uh, speech. I wanted to talk about uh, something I read in the Berkshire Hathaway annual report letter to shareholders that Buffett writes every year. I've said before, for especially a lot of you young guys, and I know the demographics of this call, there's quite a few beginning investors, people that are just starting out. I really think that you should take the time to read the Berkshire Hathaway letter to shareholders that Warren Buffett writes every year. I haven't read them all myself, but I have read quite a few of them. And after I reread them sometimes, I get uh, new tidbits of information. I wanted to talk about what was at the end of the 2018 letter and why a couple thoughts I have on this, not only with the U.S. going forward, but different places around the world. And basically, uh, Buffett says this, Charlie and I happily acknowledge that much of Berkshire's success has simply been a product of what I think should be called the American tailwind. It is beyond arrogance for American businesses or individuals to boast that they have done it alone. The tidy rows of simple white crosses at Normandy should shame those who make such claims. What he's talking about here is the American tailwind, you know, a legal framework, um, reasonable taxes, property rights, that type of thing. Um, innovation, the technological innovation that we've had, the can-do spirit. And I hardly acknowledge that. I also acknowledge that basically for the last 40 years, Berkshire Hathaway and many U.S. investors have been enjoying the fruits of a disinflationary uh, declining interest rate environment, which has benefited the U.S. economy. They've also been the beneficiary of a strong dollar. Uh, dollar being the, I mean, I don't mean strong dollars, put this way, the dollar being the reserve currency of the world. So I think it is true that uh, a lot of what goes on here in the U.S. Uh, in the past has been a catalyst for capital to flow in. It's been a great place for capital to be attracted to. I think that's changing. I've said that before. Uh, I see the rise of inequality uh, in incomes. Um, I do not believe that the capitalist system is in full effect here. I believe it's a crony capitalist oligarch type situation. It's getting worse. Um, you have all kinds of regulatory capture going on where companies uh, have a revolving door between themselves and the agencies in the federal government that regulate them. Uh, so there is no regulatory, there is regulatory capture. There's all kinds of rent seeking going on. And it's just a corrupt 
uh, it's getting more corrupt. Now, that doesn't mean it still doesn't have inertia. The U.S. economy have inertia and living off its, uh, you know, fat, if you will. But that's changing, in my view. And a lot of things that I don't have time to go into uh, are making, increasingly making the United States as a whole less competitive and less um, inviting as a destination for capital. Look what's going on in some of the states. Look what's going on in the exodus in California, the exodus from Illinois, New York, these ridiculous taxation and regulatory policies they have. And they're just doubling down in many of these places. You have the mayor of New York City saying, Bill de Blasio recently said as an example, that that's get used to it. That's our goal here, wealth redistribution. Well, you might say, well, he's a goofball. He's crazy. But he's the mayor of New York City. That's the financial capital of the world or currently is. I'm not sure it's going to maintain that if it continues on with these kind of nonsensical policies. And what I'm telling you is, I've talked about this in the past, policy matters, values matter, ideas matter. And I think now that you know, we are seeing things get eroded that I think were, as Buffett called here, the American tailwind. Now, like I said, it's not gonna go away immediately, uh, but he says at the end here, the last bullet, over the next 77 years, however, the major source of our gains will almost certainly be provided by the American tailwind. We are lucky, gloriously lucky to have that force at our back. I kind of see this a lot with a lot of people in that generation. You know, they're kind of nostalgic. He is a very brilliant investor, probably the most brilliant investor of all time based on his returns, at least of this era. And... But I think there's this nostalgia. I mean, can you see what's really going on? I mean, uh, state after state, this is, you know, everybody's running from these states, but, you know, where are they running to in Texas? To Austin. Austin's already like California. Now, these things just like kind of self-destruct over time because the people's views, the people's values is what matters, is what creates this American tailwind. But I want to focus on the second bullet here because I think it's important for our purposes. There are also many other countries around the world that have bright futures. About that, we should rejoice. Americans would be both more prosperous and safer if all nations thrive. At Berkshire, we hope to invest significant sums across borders. And I couldn't agree more. The, there are many countries in the world that are frontier and developing markets where governments now, not all, but many places are recognizing, hey, we are in a competitive situation with our neighbors and with all the other countries around the world competing for investment capital, competing for smart people. In order to do that, we can't have a closed economy with a lot of nonsense going on here, especially if you are developing or just starting out. You need to really put forth good policy that attracts capital and that people can rely on that's not that's not going to be shady or shaky and change and be arbitrary and in places we've seen that like i just like to keep bragging on the country of georgia this is a place that if you look at its statistics if you look at its history since 
the Soviet Union collapsed, the policy that they've policies that they've enacted there have got it into the top 10 if you consider it part of the uh, it's not part of the eurozone but it's the closest block that it gets compared to it's in the top 10 of every you know metric and usually in the top five as far as corporate transparency ease of starting a business corporate taxes regulatory environment it's all pro-business it's pro-capital to draw capital in and what has been the net result well until the year of covid you know, 10 plus years of 5% or higher growth. You know, that's called compounding. Compounding is a magical thing. It over, if you can increase, you know, your GDP every year at 5% plus for 10 or 15 years, you're going to make a big dent in uh, people's, you know, raising people's living standards. And I think that other countries around the world are recognizing the same thing. We've seen other countries we've invested in that started out with the right idea and then became nationalistic. I give Mongolia as an example. It has a schizophrenic government, it is blessed with trillions of dollars of resources, but you know can't get its act together. And uh, we see the exact opposite, in my view, in a country like Uzbekistan. I like keep talking about these places because I believe that's where the growth is. You know, how big, I mean, how, how fast can the economy grow in the United States? Two, two and a half percent, if we're lucky. And then you're talking about over the next generation that I can see more regulation, more taxes, more problems, more debt, demographics in decline. I mean, make the world your oyster. There's no reason to just have home country bias. And you look at these places that are, you know, instituting pro- uh, capitalist type um, policies and they benefit. And, you know, the United States, this is, you know, this comment that he makes here that over the next 77 years, like I said, we're living on inertia now. We're in decline. Uh, I don't mean to say that to be negative. There are pockets of success. I mean, I still make investments here in the United States. There's still opportunity here, but it's not going to be the same as it was. There's just uh, a lot of issues here. I mean, we're not even a unified country. What, I mean, I really challenge people to think about this. What unifies this country? A common language? Well, you know, you can go to certain DMVs in different states and take your, your driving test in 30 or 40 different languages. My wife came here from Ukraine. She took her driver's license test in Minnesota in Russian. Now that could be good or bad, however you look at it. But what I'm saying is, does language make us cohesive? Does race, does um, religion, does values, what is it? You know, what I can see that unifies us is the NFL, I guess, and advocating for, you know, transgender rights. That seems to be the unit everybody ever talks about. No one has a philosophical discussion about what is a country, what unifies it, what makes it successful. Now, you could say that these are antiquated views, but I'm telling you that the Chinese and Indians are not playing. They have three times the population we do, and especially in China, that they are poised and wanting to create a hegemon, and they are in the process of doing it. And we're sitting here, uh, you know, worrying about things that we shouldn't be worrying about, in my view. They're bigger fish to fry. But like I said, the ability to move capital around the world is open to us. 
And I'm not going to have these conversations. I'm not here to change people's minds. I'm not here to have my mind changed. I'm going to deploy my capital in a way that I think is, uh, is going to work out the best for me. And history has shown that capitalism, capitalism, there is no other system shown in the history of man that has raised more people out of poverty and, and increased people's standards of living known to man than capitalism. And I'm not talking about the crony capitalism that we have in the West. So I thought this was interesting. I think focusing uh, around the world and putting a portion of your assets in places that are becoming friendly to capital is going to benefit you. Sorry about that. Um, Fred Hickey, he writes a newsletter that it's so old school that you have to send a check to a post office box to get an actual newsletter. I don't believe he has his online. But anyways, he's a very smart guy. Follow him on Twitter. And uh, I think it's called the High Tech. I can't remember what the name of it is. Anyways, um, oh, High Tech Strategist or something like that. Anyways, he talks a lot about gold too. I like this tweet though. Trump, Pelosi, Lindsey Graham, AOC, and Bernie. Well, that's pretty much a whole, you know, across the spectrum of pol political people. All support $2,000 checks. The Fed has persuaded them that there's no cost to printing money. Though they may not openly acknowledge it, they all believe in MMT, free money. Got gold? So I want to talk a little bit about this. I've talked about it in the past. Um, you can argue whether the merits of sending people money that are hurting are appropriate or not right now. Uh, because the government has done what it's done, people are really hurting. But do not, dis do not disillusion yourself with, with an idea that none of this will have any consequences. And this is the problem, that when everybody believes that there's not going to be any consequence to printing, you know, $600 checks, well, how about 2000 Why not 5000 or 10000 or 100000 That's what Rand Paul said, and I agree with him. You know, so, you know, back in the back of their brain, subconsciously, people know that this is ridiculous. You can't just keep printing and giving away free money. It's going to be a problem at some point. Because that's why they're not just, want to just, you know, get rid of all taxation and give everybody a $50,000 a year income. We'll just print it up. Well, that would be tremendously inflationary and would destroy the economy and the currency. But 2000 is okay. So what's the threshold where it's not okay, where it tips you into an inflation? I, I posit to you, I suggest to you, the listener, that if it feels good, they're going to do it. And this is what happens in the initial portion or, or stages of an inflation, of a crack-up boom, which we are in. People like me that are the Cassandra, they were called Cassandras, Jeremiah's, you know, we are the prophets that should not be listened to because we have always been wrong. Where's the inflation? You, it never happens. You know, we had all these QEs and nothing happened. We're giving money away, nothing happens. There's no inflation. So we'll just give more away. Well, you know, you can smoke for 30 or 40 years and then get lung cancer. You may not get lung cancer a month after smoking or a year or two after smoking. But we know that smoking causes, you know, all kinds of physical ailments, kills 400,000 people a year. Yet people continue to do it. 
because it's addictive. And that's what this is for politicians. Giving things to people allows you to go out and tell everybody how wonderful you are and why they should continue to vote for you. Um, really, it's a pox on the American people. Kind of reminds me of my favorite movie character of all time, the Ray Zelensky character um, in Tommy Boy, who ran Zelensky Auto Parts and was always get, making commercials about how he support he makes American parts for the American worker because that's who I am. And it was all, you know, BS basically come to find out. And Tommy Callahan finds that out in the elevator ride with him. He's like, you sure are different than you are in your, in your commercials. And he says to him, hey, listen, what the American people don't know makes them the American people. You know, we keep putting these people in here, Trump, Pelosi, you, you vote for these people, okay? They're the ones that are, you know, advocating for these policies. You need to educate yourself. You're not going to stop it. I'm not going to stop. It doesn't matter what I say. I mean, this is what's going to happen. MMT is going to happen. You need to prepare yourself for it because I don't even know where this is going to end up or how crazy it's going to get. But you can't continue to exchange nothing for value, which is what fiat currency is. And you buy a can of soup or you put a gallon of gasoline in your car with this fake money that they give you and wealth is destroyed. You're not exchanging value for value. You're exchanging made up monopoly money for value. People had to expend effort and energy and time. And that has a cost and that has a value. And just, you know, get doing this with, free, with giving away money that just is printed out of thin air, it's fiat. Uh, you know, I don't know how this ends, but it just doesn't seem like it's going to end well. I wanted to put this in here. This was a couple weeks ago, but you know, th this is really helpful too to the MMT cause. You know, Janet Yellen is going to be evidently made the Treasury Secretary under the Biden administration. What I think is significant in this is because she, when she was at the Fed, she was a straight up dove. Now she's making comments to the to the fact that. She believes that the treasury should be used to, you know, basically cure societal ills. Well, that's not the purpose of the U.S. Treasury. It's not there to cure society's ills. It's there to, you know, maintain the finances of the United States government. But, you know, I guess, you know, she'll be the first woman to lead the treasury. So we've got that going for us. And that's what's really important in this age and time. Wanted to talk about this. You'll remember, uh, if you're a longtime listener, back here is when I thought, when we had this rate spike in late 2018, I thought this was going to be the catalyst for kicking off the next crisis. And you will recall that what happened is uh, Fed stepped in and started buying, you know, treasuries again. This was the, they started trying to raise interest rates at the end of 2018. And I thought, well, they're going to blow up this junk bond market and these zombie companies, and we're going to have a tremendous, you know, reckoning. And they didn't. They lowered rates and put it off for another day. Then we had the COVID. You saw how low junk rates got here. And then we had the, of course, March meltdown and everything. And this is when the Fed stepped up with all of its extraordinary uh, activity, the special vehicle, special purpose vehicles, 
where Fed just printed money and the Treasury was able to, you know, channel it into these junk bonds. They didn't really have to spend too much money, actually. I think they only spent about $13 billion. They had authorized $700 billion. But what they did was they told the market what they're going to do. So if, the, if you want the easiest layup trade in the world, if the Fed comes out and says, oh, yeah, we're going to bail out the junk bond market with these special perfect vehicles, special special purpose vehicles wink wink we're going to buy junk bonds wink wink what do you think all the sharpies in wall street did they went out and bought them and front ran the fed so they did all the work for the fed they bought all those bonds and knew knowing that the fed and the u.s government had given them an implicit guarantee that they weren't going to lose money and you see what happened now we're at a record low for junk bonds these, they're junk bonds for a reason. These are crappy companies, okay? These are companies that have a good chance of going out of business and they're not paying that much interest because we have, we swing from one bus to the next bus and the Fed always comes in and lowers rates or in this case goes in and just directly buys, um, buys the uh, securities. This is a big part of your problem of why you have wealth inequality and another reason why you have this crony capitalist society. You don't have the clearing function and the creative destruction that Schumpeter talked about where crappily, crappy businesses ran by incompetent people go away, their assets don't disappear, they get amalgamated or taken over by people that are competent managers that know what they're doing, okay? And then yes, there's dislocation but people find new jobs and new industries and new, new things to do. But what we've created is what Japan created, a bunch of zombie companies running around, barely making their interest payments, barely hanging on. Instead, you know, it's like, it's again, like the forest fire analogy. Are you gonna let the dry tinder build up and build up and not do any, you know, controlled burns to control the undergrowth? Or are you going to wait till you get a big, big lightning strike somewhere and then a forest fire that just starts consuming all this built up nonsense? Same thing here. At some point, there's going to be a reckoning. And all of this pain that could have been, should have been done over these time periods is going to happen all at once. And it's going to be beyond the Fed's ability to control. But we have more important pressing things to talk about in the US economy. This is I bring this up not to disparage the people, not to uh, be the old fuddy-duddy, but I want to make a point here. This is the NASDAQ saying that uh, they're having a proposal where NASDAQ-listed companies will be required to publicly disclose board-level diversity statistics through NASDAQ's disclosure framework within one year of the SEC's approval. Companies listed on NASDAQ Global Select Market and NASDAQ Global Market will be expected to have two diverse directors within four years of the SEC's approval of the listing rule. Companies listed on the NASDAQ Capital Market will be expected to have two diverse directors within five years of the SEC's approval. I thought the whole purpose of, I thought all these distinctions didn't matter. The color of your skin didn't matter. Your sexual preference didn't matter. We were all supposed to look at everybody as an individual. But this stuff is constantly pushed. Now, let me ask you a question. You say, well, John, how can you be against this? I'm not against it. Any company that I own, if I want the smartest, 
best connected people in that industry. Yes, I want connected people in industry. If I have a board of directors running a gold mining that are the board of a gold mining company, I want them to understand the industry. I want them to know the people in the industry. I want them to be connected with people in the industry. So of course it's going to be insular. So the idea is, well, we don't have enough opportunity. Do you actually think that the board of directors of any of these companies is going to go out and get some diverse person in italics out of the south side of Chicago and put them on a board? No, it's going to be the black guy that they went to college with or were in the fraternity with. It's going to be, you know, the, uh, hey, I know this uh, director of this other company and she's a lesbian. So that'll meet, meet our thing. It's going, and they're all going to be of the same class. Do you understand? It's not these people, these, these people in control of the country and of control uh, of our economy are not, it's, it has nothing to do with race and gender and all these other things. It's class. These people, they're not going to reach out to somebody that, you know, uh, the board of directors at Procter and Gamble or Intel or something are going to reach out to somebody that went to, you know, Upper Valley, Missouri State University that happens to be a black lesbian put her on the board. They're going to go and say, well, I went to Dartmouth or I went to Harvard. Uh, do, does anybody know anybody? And they're going to get that person on the board. So where's the real diversity? Because all those people think the same because in order to get to those levels, you're not thinking outside the box. Do you think they're actually going to have any power if they do put the one person from Upper Valley, Missouri State University from the south side of Chicago on the board? No. They'll put them on all the committees that don't have any power and don't do anything. And in the meantime, we're wasting time talking about this stuff. We're being outcompeted all over the world. The Chinese are not worrying about this. The Indians are not worrying about this. They have the advantage of having homogenous societies. They don't worry about these things. So I say, you know, this is going to happen regardless of what I think about it. Um, I think it's a waste of time. Uh, a lot of people will think it's a great thing. And those are the same people that advocate policies of why we're in decline. This is just another brick in the wall, in my opinion. You cannot waste time and effort on things that don't, don't matter. And people that aren't interested in competing, this is the kind of crap that they worry about. I mean, it's just my opinion. Um, so, yeah, this is going to happen. Uh, it'll happen even more as we go forward. Um, and that's just the way it's going to be. You see the Biden administration. He wants to make the, his cabinet look like the United States. What about the best person for the job regardless? What if everybody in the administration was a Korean gay person, as long as they're the smartest person. Who cares? They're the best for the job. Instead, you get Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg, whatever his name is, as the transportation secretary. What the hell does he know about transportation? He was the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, for heaven's sakes. But he's, he's openly gay, John. Don't you get it? Yeah, I get it. I get that transportation... Uh, and infrastructure is not a priority for the for serious people. This is or for people in this country. This this is not a serious country anymore. I've nothing against Pete Buttigieg. I'm sure he's you know he should work his way up the chain. He should run for you know state office, become the governor of Indiana, 
And then, you know, maybe he's ready to be an administrator or something, but he doesn't really, he said he, he really liked trains when he was growing up or something goofy like that, or he's driven on roads. I mean, come on. This is not a serious country anymore. That's the point I'm trying to make. Wanted to point this out. You know, the climate does change. I've never been a climate skeptic. Uh, you have to define your words. What I'm a um, skeptic on is climate change policy response. And you see here, I just wanted to point this out. This is a chart of the rising CO2 that we've seen. And oh, by the way, we've had rising crop yields all during this. That could have something to do with the rising CO2, CO2 being beneficial for um, plant growth. But anyways, you see the various little, I don't know, kabuki theaters that we've had, uh, most recently the Paris Agreement before that. You remember the Copenhagen Accord back in 2000, I don't even know when it was, back in the 2000s, and it snowed <laughs> when the people were there. Remember the Kyoto Protocol? That was back in the late 90s. Then they had the, before that, they had the work on climate. James Hansen testimony to Congress back in the 80s. World Meteorological Conference on Climate back in the 70s. It's just a lot of people feeding at the trough. I'm skeptical of climate change policy. Climate has changed. It will always change. Uh, I think that uh, I agree with what Charlie Munger said in his recent agreement. We're a smart enough people that uh, we can probably deal and mitigate the changes uh, quite easily. And uh, the other efforts are probably futile to actually think that by building certain devices, we're going to be able to lower the CO2 in the atmosphere. Not going to happen. And I like this because I, I labeled this slide, climate science, never having to say you're sorry. I mean, they have all these protocols, they have all these agreements, and what's the net result? CO2 levels in the atmosphere keep going up. At some point, you have to say, Hmm. Okay, let's talk about something serious and actionable here. Oil market assumptions. I thought this was a pretty good chart. It kind of makes it simple that I got off Twitter. Uh, 2019 oil demand, this is correct, about 101 million barrels per day. Current demands about 93 million. Uh, you see that uh, we're missing out on about 4 million of, because of uh, airline travel or air travels down. That's 4 million barrels a day. Uh, that's going to come back big time uh, after this vaccine. I think in the early spring, that's one of the things I'm saying for 2021. Expect a big surge in demand as they open the economies back up uh, once these vaccines uh, start to take. And the natural rollover. I mean, we're, we're in the flu and cold season right now. And eventually that will mitigate and, you know, enough people get COVID and survive and, you know, it burns itself out along with the vaccine. Uh, it's not going to just, you know, it's going to come back every year, just like influenza does. But anyways, um, you see the current supply is already down below the current demand. That's why you see inventories have been falling for six months. And we show this uh, spare capacity here. The U.S. has 2 million barrels of spare capacity, Canada one. Uh, goes down the line, OPEC, basically 11 million barrels of spare capacity. A couple of assumptions here. Demand won't materially recover as habits altered and transition to green energy. That's one of the things the market is saying. That's why you've seen oil stocks, you know, 
performing poorly until recently, that is. Um, I don't believe that that's true. I believe what uh, somebody said recently, you know, everybody's doing these Zoom calls, but the guy that gets on a plane and goes and sits down in front of the client is going to get the deal. Okay, that's going to come back. And like I said, travel, people have been locked up in their houses and you just see it all over on message boards, Twitter, social media. People just can't wait to get out. They're planning their vacations already. There's going to be a tremendous surge in travel demand. Uh, number two, current supplies and spare capacity are stable. This is another assumption, despite collapsing U.S. and international rig counts. This is where I think the assumption, these two assumptions are wrong. We've just talked about the demand assumption being wrong, in my view, and the supply dis uh, assumption. You know, the U.S. Uh, shale industry has been a perennial money loser. That's over with now. Uh, that doesn't mean they're going to go away, but they're not going to have, you know, the idea that we're going to get to 20 million barrels a day, like some people said at the top of the market, that's not going to happen. And one thing that you don't see in here is remember what Exxon said to its employees recently in a communication internally, that they discussed seven per, six to 7% annual depletion. So if you have 101 million barrels of demand and you stick 6% depletion on there, you're talking a little bit over 6 million barrels a day that has to be found. 6 million every year of depletion, right? These are depleting assets. You don't just put an oil on the ground, it pumps oil forever. It goes through a, uh, an increase in supply of bell curve, tops out, and then goes into decline. And, you know, if we're going to say that current demand is 93 million barrels a day, and you want to, we'll call it 5 million barrels a, a year of depletion. You have to replace that. There's no investment. There, there is an insufficient investment. So you're wiping out most of this spare capacity. These are, these are assumptions that are being made that are incorrect. And why I think that we are heading for a decade of higher oil prices. This goes to the discussion, somebody had this, I've shown this before in other um, podcasts or videos, but this is the cumulative $342 billion in losses, negative free cash flow uh, in the shale industry since 2010. It's never been cash flow positive and now the money's run out. So that's why you've seen all the announcements of all the various companies saying that they're going to focus on cash flow and investor returns. That is not going to lead to the spare capacity people are talking about. Now, don't get me wrong, when oil prices rise, exploration and development will recommence and it will recommence consummate with the price. It will come roaring back. But remember, there's a there's a time gap. You can't just flip a switch, snap your fingers, and bring back production. Um, assets in the field need maintenance. They atrophy. People leave the industry. The equipment isn't available. The capital isn't available. It just takes natural time to get out into the field and get these things done. So that's why I think, you know, we're seeing that in many, many commodities, many, many resources, and I think that's going to be the story of the 20, of this, of this decade, a commodity and resource boom exacerbated by 
central bank and government physical and uh, uh, monetary uh, malfeasance. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Like I said, wishing you a Merry Christmas. Um, thanks for the support. The channel is still growing and I appreciate it. Got a lot of new listeners and uh, I'm hopeful that uh, we'll be able to continue the trend. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this next year, especially in the uranium market and uh, the other resource markets. I really think that uh, we're really looking at something positive getting ready to happen. Um, next week, I'll be doing a forecast issue for 2021. I'll be delving more deeper into what I think is going to happen with energy, uranium, gold, uh, emerging markets, these things. So until then, uh, take care and we'll talk to you next time.